welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Olipop, a company reinventing the idea of soda. It's no secret that most things that we think of as soda are not so great for your body, with the massive amounts of sugar and often added artificial ingredients. But Olipop is a new kind of soda that tastes just like the sodas we grew up with, but unlike other sodas, it's packed with natural ingredients that are actually good for you and that help keep your gut happy too. They have delicious, nostalgic flavors like vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, and strawberry vanilla. Strawberry is my current favorite, but I really enjoy all of their flavors. And they use functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fibers, and botanicals to support the microbiome and to benefit digestive health. There's also a massive difference in the sugar content. Their vintage cola has just two grams of sugar compared to a regular cola that has 39 grams of sugar. All of their products are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto friendly with less than eight grams of net carbs per can. And they're so confident that you will love their products as much as I do, that they offer a 100% money back guarantee for all orders placed through their website. We've worked out a special deal just for Wellness Mama listeners. Save 15% off of your purchase. I recommend trying their variety pack if you wanted to find what flavors you love the most. This is a great way to try all of their flavors and you can grab it at drinkolipop.com slash wellnessmama or use the code wellnessmama to claim the deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash wellnessmama. And you can also find them in many stores, including Kroger, Whole Foods, and Sprouts. This episode is sponsored by Levels Continuous Glucose Monitors. I have been experimenting with this continuous glucose monitoring system for the past few months, and I've learned so much personalized data about my body's own response to different foods, even to workouts, to sauna, and to when I don't get enough sleep. I've been using Levels, and this has made a significant difference in the way I track my glucose data, and especially as it relates to diet and fitness. Levels is cool because in addition to providing you with the the continuous glucose monitor sensors, their app interprets your data, scores your individual meals, and allows you to run experiments across different inputs like diet, exercise, or even fasting protocols. They're backed by a world-class team, including Stanford-trained MD, top engineers from SpaceX and Google, and a research team that includes legends in the space like Dr. Dominic D'Agostino and Dr. David Perlmutter, both who have been guests on this podcast before. Health is so personalized, and this has given me a way to know the best foods for my own body, and it's helping me get enough protein and carbs while still maintaining weight loss. Levels is currently running a closed beta program with a wait list of 100,000 people, but as a listener, you can skip that line and join Levels today by going to levels.link forward slash wellnessmama. So again, make sure to get the link right. It's L-E-V-E-L-S dot L-I-N-K slash wellnessmama. All one word. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And this episode goes deep on the differentiations that set women apart on the physiological, limbic, somatic, biochemical, and psychological levels when it comes to health and really to a lot of things. And I'm here with Sarah, who is a holistic check practitioner and a counselor, and she's a women's health researcher from Austin, Texas. She has a lot of expertise in a lot of different areas, but in this specific episode, we go deep on how the biological differences between men and women create problems when studies are looking primarily at men, why 80% of all autoimmune disease diagnoses are in women, and 90% of fibromyalgia diagnoses, why women are experiencing more anxiety and PTSD than men, why two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients are women, how many things in our modern environment are designed specific to men, which 
can cause problems because our biology and physiology is different. So we're interacting with our world in a different way. And she also makes some really, really surprising points related to things like the link between breast cancer and certain emotions and walks us through um, some exercises to help get unstuck. There will definitely be a follow-up with her because we didn't even have time to get into at least half of the questions I had for her. And I want to talk to her again about uh, a lot more of the emotional and psychological uh, impacts of some of these things. But as a starting point, this episode really goes deep on understanding the differences biologically between men and women and how we can use these to help us be more effective in the medical and health world in addressing all humans where, where they are more effectively. So let's jump in and join Sarah. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I am so excited for this topic because I think it's not talked about enough. We know in the medical field, for instance, that there is not enough focus on the difference between men and women in even just medical studies and how women are often even excluded from studies because things like our hormones make us more difficult to have as a control group. And so often things are tested on men and then women are just kind of treated as lighter men when it comes to pharmaceuticals. And I think the medical community acknowledges that this is an issue, but hasn't really figured out how to address it yet. And I, my audience is so many women, and I hear from so many women who don't feel like they're heard or don't feel like they're getting answers when it comes to their health concerns or being told that that's normal, or we've all had like layers of that. And so I'd love to start by kind of diving in, in the idea of the unique design of women and how I know you've done work with the psychophysiology side of this to overcome female specific health concerns. And like I said, I think that's such an important topic right now because it's just not being addressed adequately in the medical field. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, just as sort of a launching pad for this topic, you know, one thing that I found very, very interesting when I was doing a lot of my research was even five years in, this was in so 2015, I found a study, it was just kind of buried in there, was in frontiers of immunology that showed that uh, females develop a more intense, innate humoral and cellular immune response to uh, viral infections and as well as vaccinations. And so this was also specifically compared to the male subjects so basically what it was saying is their sex hormones differentiate and, and differently affect the immune responses to the viruses and the specific binding to the hormone receptors that are expressed uh, in the immune cells. So we do have hormone binding receptors in our immune cells, and those differently uh, express across the board between male and female. And so they found that estrogens have an immune stimulating effect. So then later I had found another study that confirmed that estrogen compounds in females were able to stop the replication of viruses, whereas the estrogen compounds in males did not. And so the fact that they do have these studies, they have this information, they have the data, they are looking into things like this, like gender differentiations. However, it takes, you know, 10, sometimes 20 years for this literature to get practiced and on the desks of physicians into curriculum, even longer sometimes to get into medical curriculum. And so this could take, you know, up to 20 years for even to be in practice in uh, clinical practice, clinical curriculum. And so we know about it, but it's just kind of sitting there. And 
in the meantime, we're, we're still being looped in to this large group population of the average 160 pound, five foot 10 male in, in terms of collecting our data in when we're getting our lab work done in terms of being written prescriptions, in terms of being vaccinated and in terms of being assessed and, you know, cared for by our providers in all aspects in across the board and everything, even when we go to the gym and we're being given, um, you know, training programs, we're just every, all data across all, all of the board is, you know, all therapists, all trainers, coaches, uh, care providers, physicians, we're just kind of looped into the, the average, you know, five foot, 10, 160 pound male. <laughs> Which even that statistic is always interesting to me because I would guess that's based on probably outdated data as well. The average male now I would guess is probably larger than that as well. So the men probably aren't even benefiting from these recommendations at this point. Yeah, it's more, yeah, like what you kind of should be around that average height, weight. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely have seen data as well, like you mentioned on that lag in application. So we have studies, but then it takes a long time for those things to actually show up in practice. And I think that's a big reason I've advocated for so long, people being their own primary healthcare provider, because we each, especially if we have a health concern, have to, we're going to have the most vested interest in ourselves and also know our symptoms and what's going on the best. And unfortunately, that means often we need to do the research and work with practitioners who are on the same page versus just kind of outsourcing that to a medical professional, which I think has kind of been the old paradigm. But I think this is also really important and timely right now because equality is such a big topic. And, you know, everyone is so cautious about making sure that people are receiving equal treatment. But like to your point here, it's not necessarily equal in quality when it's not addressing these actual very real biological factors in women. And so it basically like to me is I've always thought equality doesn't mean the same. It means it should mean the same level of care. And I don't feel like that's happening in today's world either. Yes. It's hard for, I always say it, women don't need equality. We need equal quality. And that's a, you know, sort of this, uh, this, phrase that I've, I've repeated a lot over the years, and it's hard for many people to wrap their minds around, especially women, uh, especially those in the groups of feminists. And so, uh, and the reason it's hard for them to wrap their minds around is because we've, we've had so many waves of feminism that have done a lot of work that have gotten women too so far ahead they've done such great work and i ha i don't want to discredit that or minimize that in any way so it is difficult to wrap your mind around that phrase and what i mean by saying we don't need equality is because we are not equal <laughs> we're just fundamentally we are not equal we're not the same because that's what equal means is being the same on that level and we're just not we are not the same and i really want to draw awareness and attention to that fact is that women are not the same we can rise to the same and equal level of uh, performance and output and intelligence and all of those things, but not on the same path, not in the same way. We need to draw attention and awareness to that. We don't need the same equality of all of these things. We need equal quality to the way that 
we are given attention to our human experience. We need to understand that when we're paying, uh, it's almost like watering down our human experience by saying we need equality because we're erasing our voices and the human experience by doing that, by by removing ourselves from our femininity, by removing ourselves from the strengths and qualities that we do carry as women and those differentiations and the cogitations that we bring as women, we kind of remove ourselves from that by trying to be equal to men. And that in turn, we're hurting ourselves, we're killing ourselves, we're creating diseases. I mean, we have 80% of all autoimmune diseases and diagnoses are women. And 90% of all diagnoses of, of fibromyalgia are women. Two and a half times, uh, the women have two and a half times the rate of OCD and anxiety and depression. And that also is including statistics of post-war veterans. So that just is going to say that women are, are working so much harder to push themselves to be equal to something that they are not equal to. And that means we're bypassing something and detaching ourselves from a huge part of what we are as a human. And, and that, that creates a disease. So it, it, there, And there's so much more to that. Even two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients are, are women. So the, and you when you think about what is Alzheimer's, I mean we're it's it's losing of the mind, and what does that mean metaphysically? So you know even even heart attacks and heart failure in women presents different symptoms, and that gets overlooked because a lot of time women going into the ER or into the hospital with heart attacks get misdiagnosed with anxiety disorders because even still today there's the stigma on women that we're we're just mentally emotionally something's wrong instead of looking at us physically because it is in the literature it is in the curriculum that there are different symptoms for a heart attack in a woman but we we still have this social cultural stigma on women that despite knowing that there are different symptoms for a female heart attack, we're still giving them medication for anxiety and sending them on their way and letting them sit in the waiting room, right? <laughs> while they die of a heart attack. So it's, we, these, these things, while they sit uh, in, in these studies and the, this literature is out there for 20 some odd plus years and not making it into the medical curriculum, we're being failed. <laughs> we're, no one's paying attention while we're out there trying to do it for ourselves, but also we don't know. And so as we're fighting for it, we're becoming angrier and angrier. And that's a very masculine thing to do, you know, further pulling ourselves away from the feminine and who we are as humans. And so, it, and as to your point, trying to be so equal and sensitive to I guess what's very prevalent now is sex and gender. That's kind of a big thing now. And, you know, something that's come up is transgender and uh, all these different types of sexual expressions, which are very, it's relevant and valid. However, represent less than 1% of the world population. However, we're now getting rid of definitions and vocabulary. And, 
you know, midwives, nurses, medical staff are being taught and trained to not even say breastfeeding. They're being trained to say chest feeding in order to be more sensitive to the trans community that may be, you know, because of that psychological, uh, you know, I guess, sensitivity of, of what they go through wishing because they identify as a woman, but they don't have breasts. They wish they could breastfeed. They want to have that. And so that can cause them pain, understandably. However, we're talking about way less than 1% of the population. And now women who are women and identify as women who do have breasts now can't say breasts and now can't identify with their breasts. So we're, we're, we're really have allowed the pendulum to, to swing so far the other way. And we're losing our, our, identif- our identification as women and, and the human experience as a woman. And that's a very dangerous cliff to walk on the edge of. Because as I was just pointing out, the, the diseases that we are so high in the marks of, it's getting worse and worse. We have higher rates of injury, higher rates of pain, higher rates of, we, we wait longer in hospitals and ERs. It, we have higher, we pay more for medical costs than men. We pay more for health care, for medications. And um, as I was pointing out earlier, if, if a man, a woman go into an ER, the woman's going to wait longer because we're seen as more exaggerating pain. Whereas a man goes into an ER with pain, they're like, men, men will not, we're seen as like, the man's not going to go unless he's really in pain. They see him right away. So a woman tends to be forced to wait. So there's, there's just so much across the board where even today, 2021, it's like, yeah, women have more equality, but we don't, we really don't. We're not being seen for really all the differentiations that we truly do have. And you look at everything you use on a daily basis, for instance, just your phone or the keyboard that you're typing on, uh, the door handles that you use, every the the equipment at the gym, the stairs you walk on, the buttons you push, everything was designed based on the average male measurements. The, your uh, musical instruments, they've they've done studies on this too. Like pianists, classical pianists, uh, female classical pianists have two and a half times the rate of uh, overuse. Uh, injuries in their hands because the piano keys are designed for the, the hand span, the male hand span. Uh, you're the same as the phone that's designed for a male hand span. The only, can you guess which uh, items that you use on a daily basis? The only ones that are not designed based on male measurements still today. Oh. Only two. Oh gosh, I don't know. I would guess maybe something to do with what was a traditional female realm, like in the kitchen or cooking or something like that. That's one kitchen utensils. And there's one more. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Oh gosh. I don't know. Shopping cart. Oh wow. Yeah. So the height of the shopping cart and the handle is based on a female height and hand measurements. So yeah, still today. <laughs> it's like, you know, so 
everything else is is designed for the average male measurements and so if you think about you know we're so used to even women using all of these things we don't think twice about it we're you know we're not thinking about it but when you think about arthritis and the the rate of women who experience osteoporosis osteoarthritis and arthritis is far outweighs the diagnoses in men and you wonder there, there, I've looked for the studies. There's not too many studies that associate or even look to the fact that maybe that has something to do with the long, long-term chronic over, like overuse of every day, every thing use of, of products and equipment and just tools, everything that are designed for measurements that are beyond the scope of what fits us. So we're overextending and overusing unconsciously all the time, our whole entire lives. And it makes you wonder, is that why we are the ones with our arthritis and bone loss? And because we're just, we're overusing, don't know it. We're just used to it. And so that's why I always say, just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. We're just told it's common. It's just common for women to have this. It's common for women to do that. So just because it's common does not mean it's normal. <laughs> and it, that's that's a failure in our research and design. It's a failure in our science. It's a failure in our, our, our medical community. It's a failure in our fitness and health industry that we don't look at that. We just say that these are the common things that happen and occur in women without going, why? Instead, we're like, let's just take out these organs. Let's just give you the medicine. Well, if your, your bone is deteriorating, it's, it's not the steroids in your body that are missing, <laughs> but we're injecting you with steroids. I'll tell you if your bones are deteriorating or your colon is inflamed, I promise you it's not because your body is missing steroids. Something else is causing that. Something else is the root of that. But that's what we're doing to women and well, and humans also in general. So, but that's why I get really passionate about this work is because women are highly affected on, on, you know, two times the rate, three times the rate, uh, we're autoimmune disease pain. We're at 80%, 90% and, and no one's going like, it's just common <laughs> without going why. And then addressing that, it seems like, you know, we're just creating these compartmentalizing these specialties and surgeries to remove organs and, inject things and put implants in, in the body and, and looking at it as we're just replacing the body with systems and looking at it as little pieces of systems and, and replacing the woman with little pieces of puzzles and systems. We're like, we'll, we'll just take this puzzle piece out and we'll replace it with some mesh, you know, not thinking, well, what is that going to do to her long-term? So yeah, it, it's just we're 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 removing the identity of of who we are. We're erasing the woman and and 
that's scary to me. It's scary. Like, what is that going to look like in 20, 50, 100 years? What would that look like? Yeah. And I mean, like you mentioned, I think we've clung to this idea of equality, but linked it to being the same. And we're afraid if we let go of that version of equality, that it's saying that women don't have as much value. And that's actually the opposite of what when we like to your point, look at this data. And I think not only is it possible, but we absolutely can and need to respect the dignity and the psychological experience of every person, especially including women. And to your point, including the transgender community who are navigating a whole separate set of circumstances in both of those areas and who also have very high rates of a lot of these things and of suicides and they're navigating a lot. And I feel like they deserve to be looked at in that the the things they're navigating very specifically as well, but so do women. And we can do that without denying the cellular differences within the human body. And, And we can actually help people more when we do that. So I'd love to get into some specifics about maybe female-specific training and medicine across that does take into account like our different life seasons and hormones and like where's a good starting point for women when it comes to understanding these differences and then being able to tangibly um, work to make changes once we understand them? Yeah. Well, so let's say, you know, there are women who are very tall. There are women who have, um, you know, let's just say even culturally, uh, depending on your um, ethnic background, and that's even becoming more narrowed to, uh, you know, say 30, even 40 years ago, you could study different ethnicities a bit easier, but now there's just a lot more mixed in there. However, uh, um, if you have certain ethnicities, you t- there are women who tend to have more uh, fast twitch muscle fibers, like more higher percent than other women. But across the board, on average, let's say women have roughly 50% uh, smaller type two, like the fast twitch muscle fibers than men. Uh, or the composition of it, and about roughly on average across the board, 30% uh, smaller type one, which is the slow twitch muscle fiber composition. So this is another, I would say, hot topic, because we're again talking about trans community and, you know, trans women getting into female sports. And that is something that really doesn't change when a man becomes a woman you can take the hormones you can do the surgeries but you cannot change the muscle fiber composition so that creates a higher advantage so there's a differentiation there because a trans woman competing against other women these other women on average are going to have 30% smaller slow twitch fiber, uh, slow slow twitch muscle fiber composition and 50% smaller uh, fast twitch muscle fiber composition. So there's gonna be a disadvantage no matter uh, matter how many hormones you've taken to transition, no matter how many surgeries you've taken to transition and how much you try to be equal on that playing field with other women. And so you have to look at some of these things. Again, it's nature. No matter how much you try to fool nature, nature's going to have the, the last laugh there. So another one is, again, women are generally shorter in height. We have narrower shoulders. You can't chisel those off or, you know, 
make your shoulders wider. We are built that way because we have longer torsos for reproduction. Longer torsos allow us to carry a child. That is by human design. That is natural design. So men have shorter torsos because they don't need them. <laughs> we do. So the reason women have the, sh uh, the, the more narrow shoulders and the longer torsos, it's to help us stay upright when we become pregnant. It help, helps us kind of stay there. And then we have the smaller waist and, and uh, core angle again, by design. So then when you're looking at training equipment in the gym and it's all kind of designed for male measurements and you've got those big wide Olympic bars, those are designed for based on the, the shoulder width and rib cavities of men. So women, when you see women in CrossFit pulling these bars up, they have to, it requires so much more core control and stabilization of the spine. And that's why you see them all taped up. You got more women with more shoulder injuries, spine injuries, because it's that, that bar is way too wide for them. Way, way, way too wide. And then you've got, they, women have smaller joint surfaces. We've got um, more rates of glute inhibition. Uh, because of our pelvis, we have different shapes in the pelvis and lower torso to upper torso inequalities in our muscles. So, and, and that's due to a wider pelvis and our breasts. So that causes like a little bit of inequality of how we're standing and, and where the muscle is distributed. So also by design, we have increased joint laxity and that allows for us to grow and come back, grow and come back when we're pregnant. Whether a woman becomes pregnant in her lifetime or not, that is in there because she was born a female. That's just, it's by nature. So we have more joint laxity, which leads us more prone to injury. And we have to be aware of that. We are more hypermobile and our muscles also a good thing to be aware of too, is our muscles are favored by estrogen. So during certain phases of our, um, our cycles, during reproductive years, when estrogen peaks mid cycle, for example, and then it'll, it'll go up a little bit right before, uh, you know, our periods, and then it tanks again, but our muscles are favored by this. So we have more speed, endurance, agility, and also workout recovery. We recover a lot quicker than men. So we tend to also present certain um, postural dysfunctions that are not usually looked at due to breasts, due to pelvis, due to joint laxity and, um, you know, hypermobility. That's the forward head and the kyphosis where, you know, our, our back is a little pronounced and the pelvis is tilted forward. And so there's this over, you know, we, we pay so much attention on glutes, 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 but we're not really even activating the glutes. So instead we're we're usually activating our hamstrings most often and uh, because we wear high heels. So women wearing high heels a lot, that makes us quad dominant. So we're using our quads all the time. It leads to a lot of ankle injuries, leads to a lot of low back pain, back pain injuries. And funny enough, because it's all on the same nerve pathways, it can lead to incont incontinence sexual uh, discomfort when we're having sex, it can lead to uh, IBS, like uh, constipation. 
And, you know, because of the postural dysfunction, it puts us in, and then we can't activate the glutes and the glutes are the, the, those big muscles that support the spine. And when we're the spine is not being supported, what is the spine? The spine supports that core and what is in the core, pretty much every single organ in the body. <laughs> so vital organ, right? So we, we don't think about these things in terms of like how different women are, but not only just high heels and our lifestyle and what we do, but it, it we think about postnatal orthopedics and the fact it's so rare for a woman to have her uh, pelvis examined after birth and actually, actually examined uh, outside of just checking for infection and tears. And if you have to have stitches, just making sure there's no infection there. I mean, actually looking at the tissues and the organs and the muscle function, it's not examined. And surely insurance doesn't pay for that. They don't even think to, but the trauma to the, the musculoskeletal uh, system and the organs and the tissues and the fascia and everything that has just occurred during birth. And there's no assessment that has been done there. They're just like, here is some Tylenol and send you home in two days. And oh, by the way, you just get back to regular activities in six weeks. <laughs> like you just had your body ripped in half and six weeks you're on your way. But if somebody has an orthoscopic knee surgery, and we're talking like a surgery that is exploratory, that is like the size of the, the, the pin here on the top of my pin, you get six months of physical therapy, pain medications, and like all kinds of stuff. Like it's, there's a huge disconnect because we're still looking at this, like women have been giving birth for, you know, since forever. So we don't get that kind of care. But what we don't consider also is the fact that like hundreds of years ago, we had, you know, what we called maidens and women surrounding us who would take care of us. And, and the woman who gave birth, she didn't get out of bed for weeks. She didn't get out of bed because she healed. So, but nowadays the woman's up and out of bed in, in a couple of days, doing things, taking care of other children and the family and the home. And so this is why we're seeing so much injury and, and problems and removing the uterus and removing the cervix and removing the ovaries and uh, all incontinence. Again, it's common, but that it's not, it's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So many, I'm making so many notes for the show notes and um, to transition a little bit, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about this side as well. Cause I think it might even be more important. I have a note from you about the metaphysical correlations to physical symptoms and chronic illness. And when you talk about women having such higher rates of a lot of these chronic illness, it makes me really think like what's going on in that side of things that's really having an impact as well. And I, I have firsthand experience with this when I had I've been in the health world for now 15 years and had dialed in the diet and the training and was running spreadsheets and worked with every practitioner. And my health problems didn't start to resolve till I delved into the inner emotional side. And I had discounted that side for years because I had been told by doctors like, oh, it's just in your head or this is normal again. And, um, and so I think that's a really important thing that's finally starting to be talked about, but certainly not well understood at all. So can you kind of give us an overview and then we'll go deeper from there about that more metaphysical side and how that relates, especially with women? 
Yeah. You know, like I was pointing out earlier, the more we remove ourselves from the feminine and from the being, from being the woman, from the human experience of being a woman to for lack of better words, but also this is so accurate to masculate ourselves. We are overextending ourselves in order to be equal to something that we are not. We're hurting ourselves. So there is the psychological, but also the very, you know, irrational yet rational, what we rationalize to be direction that, that that's leading us into the metaphysical is metaphysical means like the before and beyond the all around the unseen, right? The all around is the, what, what's happening is the, the belief is what, what we're believing needs to be done. And that is all based upon really it's subjective. It's based on these belief systems that all have really shaped how we interpret our world and others around us. Those belief systems can be that, you know, universal, collective, also familial, like within our family systems, organizational, within our educational systems based on that. And then within our culture, like where we grew up, you know, political and so on and so forth. And then you just like just mesh all of that in together. And so not one person is the same. And, and but each person may have some similarities. And we look at that and go, women are just really trying to follow this path of what's going on around them. And they're just, we're trying, we really are trying, we're trying to make it. And on one hand, we do feel like we're being heard, but only if we do this thing. So then we'll do it louder. And the louder we are, then the more, you know, we get done then what happens is others notice that others notice, Oh, look what happened here with this wave of feminism and the me too movement that happened. So, so other groups that need to get something done, they follow suit. It just becomes a mimic of cultural movements that use rage and outcry to get things done. But then if everybody's trying to be equal to something that they aren't, we're erasing everyone's identity. We're erasing everybody's natural expression of who they came here to be on this earth, (laughs) earth plane, whatever you call it. And that is the metaphysical part of it. We are, we came here with an originating form, which is our soul. It is our our spiritual expression. That is our truth. And you look at a child who is so curious, so excited about life, so excited about learning, excited about stories, excited about, you know, music and dancing and children, other children and being around people and just soaking up the things like what kind of tree is that? What kind of bird is that? And going to the zoo and seeing the ant, they're just so excited about everything around them. By the time you become an adult, you're just like, you know, you're just sitting at a desk and you're like, you know, Monday, you know, and it's, it's, that's what happens over the timeline and we just lose it. But now imagine being the adult who is that 
Monday, driving to work, you're in traffic, you're listening to the news, everything on the news is racism and politics and fighting and a pandemic and disease and war and bombing and communists this and liberals that and da, da, da. and and by the time you get to work your nervous system is already shot and you're at a job you really don't like and you're only doing it because it has good health benefits for the family and you're working your ass off trying to make all this money for to pay for a house you never get to be in and so your life is just miserable and you don't look at it as that you just look at it as you're doing what you got to do and you're looking forward to the weekend. But by the time you get to the weekend, you're so tired. So like the, that's the average human being. Think of it now, though, as the woman, because <laughs> on top of that being the average person, and I sympathize with that, just even just being the man, right, the, the head of the household. Think of that. Think of the woman. 30 percent of women are in poverty and 60% post-divorce are below poverty level. Two thirds of the women in the world, doesn't matter poverty or married, not married, working mom, not working mom. It doesn't matter. Two thirds of the women do the, do all of the labor like world labor, like actual housework and actual labor, unpaid labor, I should say. Two thirds of unpaid labor is performed by women, even if they are also doing paid labor work. They're still also doing the unpaid labor. That's two thirds of women in the world. And so that's on top of that. And then on top of that, <laughs> We're, we're using tools, equipment, and everything around us designed for, for men. We're not being cared for based on our differentiations and, and very our, our, all the cogitative variables that need to be addressed. So metaphysically, it's almost unconscious. We don't know what we don't know, but we're forging through it. So there's all, also this unconscious anger that we don't know why we're angry, but we are because we're doing everything that we don't know we shouldn't have to do on top of the things we consciously know we're doing beyond the scope of what we should do. So it's a double bottom and it's like, a, a, like an accordion just constantly just pushing on it. And that will create disease. It will create disease when we repress anything. And on, on, on top of the, again, the subjective belief systems that shape our perception of everything. It's a, it's just a big pot, like a big soup. And so I always think of that just in terms of my experience. And I am, I grew up quite privileged. You know, we went through our like ups and downs with poverty, but still I'm white. I was for the most part, um, middle class most of the time. And then I look at the minorities or even in third world countries, the suffrage that these women that is happening. And we don't 
think about it or talk about it. It happens. So on a collective consciousness level, we are all still tapped into that as women collectively. And it, it doesn't get talked about. So even through the Me Too movement, there was a lot of talk about bringing all this awareness to, you know, these big, rich uh, movie producers and these actresses and all this poor treatment and assault things going on in hotel rooms. My heart went out to all of the women of color who were probably reading these news stories going, you had a bad date, right? Not to minimize these stories, not to minimize these women, but where, where's the spotlight on the rates of abuse and rates of domestic violence in, uh, for immigrants, uh, for African-Americans? That you didn't even see stories about it during Me Too, not like at all. You just, I mean, and so there was a lot of uproar about that. So talk about metaphysical and anger. And then what happened recently, just a year ago, a lot of this racial and, and immigration stuff came up and they're mad. They're angry, rightfully so. Because <laughs> we had a lot of white women very privileged white women getting the spotlight and news in front of the news being the victims and everybody, the whole country, the world's crying for them. And so rightfully so these people were, these women were ignored. And, and so of course they're going to join in and be very angry when they have the opportunity. So uh, you, there's a, there's a, what I, where I'm getting to long story short, where I'm getting to is there's a pattern. It's a spiral and it's going to continue to be a pattern. And there's where we see the physical come out of that is when we repress and we don't pay attention to the, the thoughts and the emotions behind what's going on. I mean, it's not like, it's not like it goes anywhere. It doesn't go away. It's like, if you have a desire for something and you're like, like, I'll just be disappointed. I'm not going to, you know, the desire doesn't go anywhere. It just hides. So that energy stays there. And then eventually it manifests in an, in some way that is generally dysfunctional and it is generally rebellious but you're going to see it in these patterns within your physical body and autoimmune disease tends to come from the feeling that you are not worth taking care of, that you don't believe you're good enough. That is the most common behind, behind that any autoimmune disease any endocrine disruption or dysfunction. I'm not good enough. Breast cancer, anything of the breast, it's always self-sacrificial. The rates, they, there is a study that was done. Oh man, I think it was late nineties, early two thousands, where they found the rates of breast cancer in correlation to Catholic upbringing was very high. And so they've, and what is, it's all about 
you you sacrifice your desire you sacrifice your authentic like your truth what you really want to say you withhold it all for the sake of keeping the peace for being good uh for um you know you don't want to sin you don't want to you know all this it's all this very sap sacrificial and that the rates of breast cancer that manifested from that and it's right there in the heart center and you're not being true to yourself to your heart and so that's all very metaphysical so when you withhold something that energy stays there it doesn't go anywhere and and it's going to infiltrate you physically uh and so there was um what was it it was a uh, Oh, what's his name? Um, so I, one of the one of the greatest authors um, of our time. I'll think of him later because I don't want to waste it. But basically, what he was saying is that the human mind cannot be replaced for the system of the you know the nervous system. So the scientist, the physician, he studies the nervous system, but ignores the fact that the mind is the gateway to the nervous system. Like without our mind, without our thoughts, we, we don't incite the emotions and the feelings. That's, you know, the whole limbic system. That's the, you know, hypothalamus and the pituitary gland and, and that whole nervous system loop that gets provoked. So we study the nervous system and how that provokes and incites the stress responses but where what what happens like how how does that start it starts from a thought which provokes an emotional response and that starts the whole neurological loop that then will govern everything hormones released your blood pressure your heart rate your sweat glands everything and and we kind of like compartmentalize all these things as like pathologies without even thinking that the thought or the perception or the attitude is what really opened the gate to that. And then we separate all of that. It's all actually just connected. It's one thing. So again, it goes back to the subjective experience of the individual. And I, I feel like a lot of people listening can probably really resonate with that idea of women caring much more of, you know, we hear talked about the emotional and physical responsibility of the household and of children um, that does tend to, on average, fall much more on women. And it's often talked about that emotional labor imbalance that exists. But I think maybe it's harder to intuitively feel that, like the emotional connection that you just talked about, that emotional repression and how that very much can exhibit in physical symptoms. And I, like I said, I knew the health side so much. And I ignored for so long the possibility that my emotions could be contributing to health problems. And when you say these things, I can certainly understand and feel very viscerally that that feeling I used to have of not being worthy of love or being taken care of and how that manifests very much in my body and how I wasn't doing a lot of things to take care of myself because I didn't feel worthy of that. So for anyone else that's resonating with, how can we start to break those patterns or, or like unpack that and break that cycle? Because I'm sure so many people listening are probably really resonating with some of the things you just said. Yeah. One place to start is, well, where I always go is this question is, so if the mind and the body are not in the same place, then we know that we're crooked, right? Uh, and if our thoughts and our feelings are not in the same place, we know we're crooked. 
And crooked doesn't always mean like you're you're naughty, you're bad, right? We just know we're not in alignment. Something something is off. So the consciousness and our unconsciousness are not meeting somewhere, right? So something likely in our subconscious is is not matching our consciousness. So like consciously we know we are worthy to be loved, but something in the subconsciousness is either uh, triggering a thought that doesn't match it, or it's triggering an emotion that doesn't match it. And so we'll do like an exercise of, you know, think about this, think about something that really creates an emotional uh, response from you. Like um, for people, it's just think of hot topics, right? (laughs) You know, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, or whether it's pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. Think of something that incites an emotional thing. Uh, Your in-laws or your mom, your dad, right? So we just start talking about something that gets you triggered. And then we ask some questions. What what are your thoughts about da-da-da-da? How do you feel about da-da-da-da, right? And then you begin to ask questions. Now let's think about that in terms of your uh, intimate partner your children. And we look at the patterns when we go through what I call the adult attachment form. And you'll see how the way they answer questions regarding their parents and growing up, their spiritual philosophies versus their relationships, there will be, there will be some patterns, but then there's something where I will catch it off guard. There's a, something doesn't match here. And then we'll go and discuss it. So one thing is, is this my soul talking or is this my fear? Is this fear? That's a long drawn out process, but if you want to go to, for your viewers, let's say, let's just do a short exercise, right? Uh, If you're stuck, right? One thing you just ask yourself, is that true? Is this true? Like, do you have all the facts to prove right now? Is this true? So, you know, your mother or a friend texts you something and the tone of the text is like passive aggressive and you receive that as they're mad. You can ask, is that true? And then the ego may want to say, yeah, this is that probably true because right? You start to list reasons because they always respond this way when da, 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 then you can ask again, how do you know? Because what else could be true? What could, what could the other truth be, right? What's the other truth, the other possibility? You flip the coin. The other possibility could be a million things. Maybe they were at a stoplight and they didn't have a lot of time to respond. So it's just like a quick, abrupt, like, you know, and it came across this way and you read it and read into it. Maybe it was, you know, the the kids were around and, you know, they're really distracted or they're in a hurry or they're, you know, on a phone call, you know, all these things. Right. So you you what you do is you mirror it back to you. When have you responded to somebody abruptly and potentially they took your response the wrong way? Or maybe you read something that you texted or wrote and you read it back to yourself and you were like, oh, they may take it this way. 
That's the other truth that's flipping the coin. And then when you do that, you can ask yourself, when did I first start to think these things? What's behind this thought? What is behind it? So what is really, okay, so they're, they're passive aggressive and they're mad. What is behind you thinking that? Why, what, what are you gaining from that? Then you ask, okay, well, by, 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 by assuming, right, that they're probably mad and projecting something onto you, then you are what? You're prepared to defend yourself. You're prepared to think of all the reasons and gather all the things that you may have been perceived wrong or misinterpreted. That way you're ready, right? Preparedness. Now you're prepared. So that could be it. You, that may be behind that. You need to be prepared. And that could be actually behind you projecting things onto people that they're upset, that they're angry at you, that they don't like you, that they're, they don't want to hang out with you, all the things, right? So this preparedness. Now, what do you need to be prepared for? Then you ask yourself that. What am I trying to be prepared for? Rejection. That next question you ask, when was the first time I can remember or recall in my earliest memory feeling rejected? And you just start working yourself back from there. And you try, try and recall like as early as you can as a child feeling rejected. And what did you learn from that experience? And this is what I teach my clients to do is just really sit with that child yourself as a child and and be with that child in that moment when you felt so rejected what were your thoughts what were you feeling what did you learn about that experience because that became your inner dialogue that became your programming so you learned from that moment to not feel that way again you don't want to feel that way again so therefore you now is you you're reading into things all the time. You're you're now looking for the clues. And so if you are walking around with a guard and a shield up all the time, everything's going to look like a weapon. So what if you put down the guard and the shield? What would the world look like? You know? And also would you be aware of the fact that maybe through all of that, in, in the process of all of that, you may have been rejecting a lot of people? So that's where we see the mirror. And by fearing rejection, that is the paradox. By being so afraid of rejection and abandonment, we in turn reject a lot of people. Because all the good intentions that may not be the way we want to receive it, we will be, we'll have a response that maybe others are not expecting. And then they feel rejected and confused. And therefore, we're rejecting ourselves. 
So in that whole process of not wanting to be rejected, we are rejecting and abandoning ourselves over and over and over again. And that is it just basically means that we are the ones victimizing ourselves. We are the ones that are not loving ourselves. And when we do that, again, going back to the nervous system, the thoughts are creating this, this, you know, if we want to get sciencey and talk about biology, that's what happens. It creates this neurological loop that starts to govern everything in our bodies. And we may not be aware of it. We may not be feeling it, but let's go, go back to women again, like, you know, on a hormonal and uh, say on a, on a level of our endocrine systems, we pump out cortisol uh, over a 24 hour period, when we are exposed to a stimulus, our cortisol levels are, are two to three times higher over a 24 hour period. We are still pumping cortisol out after a stimulus, whether it is fear, whether it is grief, whether it is sadness, whatever the stimulus is through that HPA access, when we have that perceptive stimuli, we're still pumping cortisol after 24 hours for that one thing. Now imagine we had six stressful stimuli. <laughs> we're still pumping 24, 48, 72 hours because of that one day where six stressful stimulus where we were exposed to. Now imagine then we have three children and then like some tension in the relationship and we come home from work and the house is a mess and the children are loud. Even that is stressful stimulus. Even though it's like, this is just common, it's nor this is a normal day for a woman, but it's still stimulus. It's still stress. And we're just, we're, it's such an unconscious this happens every day, whatever, you know, like this is just my day, but that is the stimulus that is happening unconsciously. And it is pumping cortisol all the time. And uh, let me see if I can find the photo and I'll show you even from the study where they took blood levels from the, the man and the woman. I think I have it marked here. And they showed, oh, here it is, what it looked like. And this is after one stressful stimulus. This is a man, and that's the woman. That's the cortisol being pumped out. And I can send you that photo, too, if you'd like to show it. But because higher levels of estrogen are, relayed, are related to a delayed cortisol delivery via the HPA access in, in, you know, in re related to stress response, any stress, whether it's good stress, working out, going for walks and pumping, you know, circulation, our systems, um, you know, lifting weights, whatever, or bad stress, we have a delayed cortisol delivery and that delayed response also it, it prolongs the stress outcome, but also it creates a chronic stress in women that it does not create in men. And it, leave, it leaves women more prone to chronic fatigue, which can explain the 90% uh, 
number in fibromyalgia, but also the higher numbers in depression for women. We, we release also on top of that, we release higher levels of cortisol and this, the, that steroid hormone when we are uh, exposed to stimulus. So that also affects our absorption of uh, certain carbohydrates and minerals such as potassium, calcium, and sodium. So that affects our metabolism of these things and can lead to metabolic issues, thyroid. It shuts off our inflammatory responses. So that is an immune response, which can also lead to autoimmune diseases. So <laughs> let's even add more layers to this cake. Psychologically, women have a shorter uh, area between the two sides of our brain. So that area between the left and the right, it, the neurons don't have to travel as far to get from left to the right. So we can actually control both sides of our brain at the same time. This was, uh, this is also as they are theorizing by natural design, because in the beginning of time, right, the men would go off to hunt the women were left to sort of protect and maintain the, you know, the caves, the, the teepees, the families and the tribes. So this meant, so the women were more peripheral. So controlling the both sides of the brain was very important. It made us more highly intuitive and highly perceptive. We smell better, see better and sense better. So while we could think logically, reasonably, and communicate, that other side of the brain doesn't shut off. So if we're, you know, chiseling tools and cooking, we also can still have that extrasensory perception and intuit things around us. That's where the, the term eyes in the back of the head come from. This creates stress because we're not living in a cave in the woods now where every once in a while we may be worried about a saber-toothed tiger. You think about the world we're living in now, where we're just constantly inundated with stimulus it's all the time, EMF and noise and children and work and work all the time, right? Working in our careers, working at home, cleaning and, you know, all the things, parent-teacher meetings and uh, relationship work, you know, all the time. So we're, our brains have tabs open all the time. And then we are also tapped in to the energy fields of our children, our husbands or partners, and the people around us, the collective fields, we are tapped into that. And we're sifting through it all the time. So we're very peripheral. So when you talk about cortisol, our cortisol is always released and at a high level. So when we're, you know, metaphysical issues being related to stress and emotions, like taking care of a woman's mental and emotional wellness has nothing to do with, is she unwell? It has everything to do with supporting a woman on an individual basis based on who she is, her needs and her authentic voice and what she wants to do. 
And, and, and what is her purpose? What is her truth? What's in her heart? It's not, it's not just, you know, she's anxious and she's crazy or, oh, she's on her period again, or, you know, it, it's, it's supporting women and their human, just giving a voice to their human experience as an individual, uh, because that in itself is going to help ease and balance and harmonize us because we have a whole lot of going on. <laughs> and I have a note here as well about a five by five formula to mitigate fear and stress. And I wonder, does that relate here as well? Like what are some of the things we can do to like start making that shift? Yeah. Yeah. So stress that, you know, because again, like that can be so like (laughs) early on in my work, I found that working on stress is stressful. That causes like, it's stressful just to work on your stress. It's like, God, you know, like we can't even catch a break because it's just so stressful just to work on our stress. So I try to figure out a way to mitigate this so it isn't stressful to, you know, manage stress. And as a woman, especially if you have children, especially if you have a dream that is outside of being a mom and a wife, right? If you have a dream outside of that, then you have to work even harder to balance yourself and harmonize your health. And so I I narrowed it down to, okay, we've got five types of stress that we can be aware of. And our body has five control systems in which stress will affect it and knock us off that our balance. So the five types of stress are physical nutritional. And those are pretty quantitative. We, we can, most of us kind of look at those things and go like, Oh, okay. Yeah. But then there's chemical stress. And that's like in a lot of stuff like detergents, air fresheners, swimming pools, tap water, like all of that stuff, but also, you know, uh, prescription medications, bug sprays. So I think a lot of us are getting to that like holistic level where we're being more mindful of the chemicals that we're being exposed to, but that's a stress. Now, um, here's another one, electromagnetic stress. That's, um, we're getting more mindful of that. But now with 5G, it's pretty difficult to mitigate this because now it's a bit everywhere. So we got to look at ways to uh, harmonize the home and our cell phones and our exposure to that by balancing those things out with certain products and and things like that. Then we've got... um, psychic and mental stress. Now that's not something we can get rid of. Like that's not going to go away ever. Just working on our self-development and our spirituality and pursuing our dream and all of that is just going to be psychic and emotional stress. So we just have to learn how to like have little buckets of need to, should, and have to. Like this is something I have to do. It's non- it's not a compromise type of deal. These are the routines, the rituals, things that I have commitments to. And then this bucket is a, I should do this. This is something I should do because it's good for my health and wellness, but it's not a really like urgent kind of thing. These are like wishes, right? And then there's the bucket, like I need to do this because if I don't, right, there's a, if I don't, there's a consequence to that. Like 
I need for my psychic, mental, emotional wellness, I need to eat three meals a day, or I need to eat five small meals a day. You'll know by being in awareness of yourself, I need to drink more water for my emotional and psychic wellness, because when I get dehydrated, like all these things happen, I need to sleep. I need to take a break at this time of the day. I need like those, that's the, I need bucket for your psychic wellness. And then there's the have tos, which is like, this is the like time management thing. Like the, these are the things that I am committed to, such as the soccer practices and the eating dinner with my family, da, 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 da. So, you know, that anything within those time frames, that's a, you're not compromising those things. So outside of that, you can be flexible. So have tos need tos and I should. So if I get to, if, if I accomplish my have tos and needs, then I'm going to get to some shoulds for my own sake. Right. So we got to all the stresses, you know, nutritional and physical. I forgot to mention the physical stress. There's good and bad. You're either working out too much or you're not working out enough. So if you're not moving enough, that is stressful. If you're working out too much, that is stressful. And so you have to gauge with your, your own physical awareness of your body, of whether you're doing too much or not enough. And so if you're having a hard time recovering after workouts, you're doing too much. And, you know, if you're sore and achy in the mornings or by the end of the day, you're not moving enough. Nutritional stress is, you know, are you eating the right foods? It's like when you're eating, what you're eating, how you're eating too. If you're eating in the car in a rush, you're, you're probably experiencing nutritional stress because your, your digestion can't work like that. So then there are the five main stress control systems. So once we have those kind of like marked up, those, the five stresses, that's for us to be aware of, be aware of these things. Let's be mindful of these things. However way is good for you. You can draw a picture of the five stresses and have them somewhere that you're like, you're going to see them all the time, whether it's a refrigerator, or like in your office or whatever. And like, okay, I'm, I'm being aware of these things or whatever. Now we have the five stress control systems. Number one for me is the limbic system, which is what we were just talking about before this. So your nervous system isn't going to get activated unless you're thinking, perceiving something, unless something is stimulating a, a thought or an emotion that incites this uh, neurological feedback loop that then begins to govern all of your thoughts and your behavior in certain ways. So that's the limbic system. And it, this is part of the brain that involves our, you know, behavioral, emotional responses. And especially in parts of things like related to survival, like feeding, caring for others, fight or flight. Then there's the hormonal that's the, uh, the second stress control system. And we can usually attend when, uh, attend to when this is a bit off for us women, especially this is, um, part of the endocrine system. And this is all of our glands that produce hormones that regulate metabolism, 
growth development, sexual function, reproduction, sleep, mood, as well as many other things. But you're going to be able to tell when your hormones are off just based on, you know, body temperature, sleep rhythms, your mood, your throughout the day. Is your mood like erratic throughout the day? Is your energy, you know, up and down throughout the day? And um, how's your body temperature being regulated throughout the day? Can you self-regulate your temperature? And uh, metabolism uh, has a lot to do with all of those things too. But uh, are you needing to drink coffee in the morning? And do you need something at night to get you to sleep? That's a big indicator your hormones and your endocrine system is way off and you need to do something very quickly because that's a slippery slope. Uh, your visceral system is the third. That's, you know, all your organs working very unconsciously, but intelligently together to maintain homeostasis. So this is the autonomic nervous system. So this is the nervous system. That's like basically communicating with all of your organs and it regulates all of your organs without any conscious thought or effort. So, uh, this system just sends signals to each other. So you're going to notice like digestive issues, uh, most, mostly right. Uh, ability to concentrate, uh, memory, things like that. The most notable in this system is digestive and elimination. Are you pooping regularly? Is it healthy poop? Uh, when you eat, are you feeling gas, bloating, things like that? And um, so this is the switchboard, the autonomic system, you know, if, and from, for most women are the, the side of the switchboard that's on is always the fight or flight. The uh, fourth is the nervous system, central nervous system, peripheral. And as women are very peripheral, that means these are always lit up. And so these are the ones that carry all this, uh, the, the, messages to everybody, all the other systems of the body. But what governs the nervous system is our perception, our subjective perception of the world. So, so much work can be done with all of the ones that I just listed, limbic, hormonal, visceral, and nervous system. If we work on our perception of the world, because usually this is all conditioned, subjective to how we were raised, influenced, uh, conditioned within our family, within our educational uh, organizations, by the movies we watched and the churches we went to, all of those things. And that don't necessarily serve us now. And if we work on these things, it can very much change everything about the way our nervous system works, because all of that stuff uh, in, in terms of how we perceive the world and look at the world doesn't, and very unconsciously, by the way, doesn't match our conscious waking world anymore. It doesn't match our conscious waking thoughts and beliefs anymore. And it creates this like inner conflict. And so when we explore that and individuate from that, then we literally can just eliminate that stimulus from our nervous system just right there. 
and eliminate all those biological and physiological responses that impact our, our endocrine system all the time. And, and it's just very, it's such a subtle thing happening all the time. So simply doing that, um, the working on all those belief systems is, is so, so important very, very important to the nervous system. The last one is musculoskeletal. Cause as I said, you know, as we pump out such higher rates of cortisol that affects our metabolism and it affects the, our, our mineral absorption, which in turn will affect our bones and our soft tissues and our ligaments. And we're already at a disadvantage there. So we will see higher rates of injury and, and uh, uh, bone loss and arthritis and pain and postural dysfunction. And uh, if we, you know, have surgery, slow wound recovery and, and repair, things like that. So it's so important for us to uh, work on all of the things above there. So just even having a mindful understanding of these five by fives, just very, very simple little categories of the five by five and having them in a conscious awareness, not even being an expert about them, just having a conscious awareness of these day to day and, and just checking in with yourself, you know, is, can just go a long way, a, such a long way for women. Made a lot of notes on that one too. This will be at wellnessmama.fm. This podcast is sponsored by Olipop, a company reinventing the idea of soda. It's no secret that most things that we think of as soda are not so great for your body with the massive amounts of sugar and often added artificial ingredients. But Olipop is a new kind of soda that tastes just like the sodas we grew up with, but unlike other sodas, it's packed with natural ingredients that are actually good for you and that help keep your gut happy too. They have delicious nostalgic flavors like vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, and strawberry vanilla. Strawberry is my current favorite, but I really enjoy all of their flavors. And they use functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fibers, and botanicals to support the microbiome and to benefit digestive health. There's also a massive difference in the sugar content. Their vintage cola has just two grams of sugar compared to a regular cola that has 39 grams of sugar. All of their products are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto friendly with less than eight grams of net carbs per can. And they're so confident that you will love their products as much as I do, that they offer a 100% money back guarantee for all orders placed through their website. We've worked out a special deal just for Wellness Mama listeners. Save 15% off of your purchase. I recommend trying their variety pack if you want to find what flavors you love the most. This is a great way to try all of their flavors. And you can grab it at drinkollipop.com slash wellnessmama or use the code wellnessmama to claim the deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash wellness mama and you can also find them in many stores including kroger whole foods and sprouts this episode is sponsored by levels continuous glucose monitors i have been experimenting with this continuous glucose monitoring system for the past few months and i've learned so much personalized data about my body's own response to different foods even to workouts to sauna and to when i don't get enough sleep I've been using Levels, and this has made a significant difference in the way I track my glucose data, and especially as it relates to diet and fitness. Levels is cool because in addition to providing you with the the continuous glucose monitor sensors, their app interprets your data, scores your individual meals, and allows you to run experiments across different inputs like diet, exercise, or even fasting protocols. They're backed by a world-class team. 
including Stanford-trained MD, top engineers from SpaceX and Google, and a research team that includes legends in the space like Dr. Dominic D'Agostino and Dr. David Perlmutter, both who have been guests on this podcast before. Health is so personalized, and this has given me a way to know the best foods for my own body, and it's helping me get enough protein and carbs while still maintaining weight loss. Levels is currently running a closed beta program with a wait list of 100,000 people. But as a listener, you can skip that line and join Levels today by going to levels.link forward slash wellness mama. So again, make sure to get the link right. It's L E V E L S dot L I N K slash wellness mama. All one word. Time wise, I feel like there's still so much more I want to go into with you, especially like the shadow work in the inner child side. And I feel like if you're willing, that could be its whole own second episode um, because I feel like it deserves plenty of time. Um, But I want to respect your time and the audience time today. So a couple quicker questions I love to ask toward the end is uh, I think we've already kind of delved into the misunderstandings when it comes to your area of expertise, but any particular advice that you want to make sure you leave with the women listening today? Yeah. One of my biggest things that I give advice for, and we touched a little bit on it, so I I will leave you with this, is anytime you have a thought, ask yourself, is it true? Even if it seems true, I I always say, question yourself. I do it to myself all the time. I do it every day. I I always question myself. The biggest challenger you should have is yourself. Compete with yourself. Always try to outgrow yourself, outgrow your thoughts, outgrow your beliefs, outgrow your feelings. And because it's so easy for us to be objective and uh, observers of others and what how they're kind of misaligned, doing it wrong and how they are because we're detached from their outcome. We're detached from their emotions. However, that's easy. It's easy. What that is showing us is what we are often missing in ourselves. So always outgrow yourself, challenge your thoughts, challenge your feelings, question yourself always, constantly, and and write down your dreams if you can. Because uh, if you do that and really explore those, that is truly in terms of universal symbolism. Read Carl Jung. You'll never need a therapist ever in your life. I know that's bad for my job security, but if if you study Carl Jung, write your dreams down, free therapy right there. And read books written before 1989. Uh, You'll get so much more. That's it. That's That's my advice. I love that advice. And speaking of books, I think you're going to have an unconventional answer to this question as well. But I always love to ask if there's a book or a number of books that had a profound impact on your life, and if so, what they are and why. Yeah. Definitely do. I'm asked this a lot because I do read a lot. And um, uh, so people do always want to know what my one book is or author, et cetera. And knowing that I am a researcher and I read a lot, I mean, I mean, I have so many books, but my answer is that there is no book. And I came to this realization because I am obsessed with books. I am obsessed with reading. I'm obsessed with learning. And I'm obsessed with knowing. And that's the problem. That is my problem. My problem is this obsession of knowing and and having more information. And that is a a big problem in the world today. And, And so 
my answer to this question usually is in the form of a person, which would be Paul Check. And so I like to think of him also as a human book anyway, because he's just, you know, you could ask him a question and he would reference a book, tell you what page it's on and which paragraph. He's, he is a phenomenon, but he is the man who taught me to find the wisdom within myself. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't read anymore. I love reading. I love researching. Researching is, is my jam. But uh, he was the one who, because I am so serious about questioning everything and not trying to land on one answer and being so firm in this answer and opinion or theory that took me down the rabbit hole like Alice in Wonderland is he taught me that books are really truly other people's ideas. They're other people's thoughts. It's other people's work. And usually that comes from other people's thoughts and other people's work. There are really no original thoughts and ideas when you're reading a book or a program or whatever. The real true wisdom comes from you, your, your heart. And so if you're seeking something, especially um, if you're trying to explore growing, um, learning about you, yourself, you need to be inspired. Uh, you have to look within yourself. You have to turn this off and meet yourself somewhere here because this is where the true wisdom is. And he even made me go on a learning fast. I wasn't allowed to read, learn, um, study, take a course, nothing for four months. It was the most difficult thing I ever did. And that is when I wrote my course. And so real wisdom is here. And so no real books. Uh, if you really want to grow yourself and be inspired right here, this is your book, your heart, open it. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up for today with a promise of around two to go into a lot more deeper topics beyond this. But Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Like I said in the beginning, this is such an important topic and I love voices like yours that are helping illuminate it. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks as always to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time and your energy and attention with us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.